The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Matt Peterson, the ideas editor for Barron's. My guest today is Tina Fordham. She is a geopolitical strategist and founder of Fordham Global Foresight. Welcome, Tina. Thank you for having me. All right, let's get into it. Tina, you have said that the world is in the midst of a geopolitical risk supercycle, and it certainly feels like it today. Uh, so tell us what that means. Thanks, Matt. Um, I came up with the idea of a geopolitical risk supercycle, kind of taking a cue from the world of astronomy, uh, where a supercycle indicates an expansion. Um, now, it's also used perhaps more commonly for market participants to, to talk about the commodities supercycle, but I think a supercycle is a good way of thinking about it because I don't necessarily mean um, that we are heading toward an enormous conflagration so much as an expansion in the number of, of drivers which are active and in the absence of kind of, you know, uh, effective buffers or countervailing forces simply mean that we're going to be experiencing more geopolitical disruption uh, than we're used to. And to me, this is, you know, um, quite an intuitive concept. But when I talk to investor audiences and boards about it, um, I can I can see the you know the deflation in their eyes because the the most common question I get inside boardrooms is uh, when is this all going to end and go back to normal? And uh, I'm trying to convey with the supercycle concept that it's really not, but we can do better at anticipating the shifts. Um, and we can also invest in prevention. What a concept. <laughs> you, you said that some of the buffers are gone here. So talk to me about wh what is what has changed that's driving this cycle. Well, as you know, um, I am rather unusual for a geopolitical strategist having sat inside a large financial institution for almost 20 years as the chief global political analyst and therefore having daily contact with how you know, geopolitics and what I call social change interact with financial markets, or in many cases, for some number of years, really didn't. And so if I talk to investors who've been you know, trading for only the last 10 or 15 years, they don't really know what you're talking about when you talk about geopolitical risk. And there's a simple explanation for that. It isn't actually the absence of geopolitical risk. There have been plenty of wars, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Horn of Africa, refugee crises, climate change, you know, numerous disruptive events. But the mitigating factor, kind of relating to what I said at the start, was liquidity from central banks mainly, but also from the onset of US energy independence, which meant that when we did see dislocation in geopolitics, um, it just simply didn't have much of an impact on markets. Therefore, 
it's logical to expect in a time of less liquidity that these kinds of um, events will will matter more. Yeah. So let's let's talk about some of those events then, uh, and let's let's start with Russia because there's been so much drama there recently. Um, and I have to start any conversation about Russia by mentioning that our Dow Jones colleague uh, Evan Gershkovich has been imprisoned there now unjustly for a hundred days as of today, and we're all uh, hoping and expecting that he gets released soon. Um, but broadly speaking, investors just sort of shrugged off what's been going on in Russia recently. Uh, what should they be watching here? Well, it's it's a it's a good point. I mean, I was interviewed the weekend of the um, bizarre uh, Prigozhin non-mutiny um, that you know rode to Rostov uh, and getting close to the Kremlin. Um, and my you know my perspective at the time was that I didn't expect a big disruption in markets. And this is where, you know, perhaps I should be talking up, you know, the potential for geopolitical risk generate massive market moves, but we've got to understand what the transmission mechanism is. It's either uh, an asset price shock or a growth shock. And if Prigozhin went all the way to the Kremlin and went for it and there was a coup, then we might be talking about a different state of affairs. But in an environment where you know, most multinational corporations have wound down their operations in Russia and the world, at least the Western world, has largely learned to live without Russian gas supplies, that transmission mechanism wasn't really present, right? So, um, it's not surprising that markets shrugged it off, but we need to be able to to hold these kind of uh, competing concepts at the same time. One is that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been the, the most transformational geopolitical event of the last several decades. And at the same time, it's not necessarily surprising um, that market impact has been muted as the um, financial market participants get used to it carrying on. I think we would see uh, a, a kind of a relief rally if there were some talks, but alas, uh, those don't seem to be materializing just yet. Yeah, so what, what do you see as the sort of near-term course of the politics here? You know, the Ukrainians are on this sort of widely expected summer offensive. We haven't necessarily seen a lot of battlefield changes yet. You know, Putin seems to be sort of back in control. We could talk about that. What, what, what's your outlook uh, in the short term for for the conflict? Well, I've been a, a Russia watcher for uh, so long that um, it, uh, it it dates me embarrassingly to to say so. But back in the days when uh, you know young American college students were working on democratization and the kinds of reforms in Russia and the former Soviet Union that Putin decided were um, <laughs> were traitorous at a certain point. So, you know, my experience uh, in that country goes back quite a long way. Um, I think that we shouldn't have been surprised that Putin invaded, and indeed this was something that I was warning about. Um, I also think it's misplaced when observers talk about the need for an off-ramp. And if we can take away a lesson from the bizarre events of the non-mutiny, 
I think it is that a you know an authoritarian leader like Putin can can create his own reality um, for all of the people who said he would you know never allow Prigozhin to you know to to go free. Apparently, he's in Saint Petersburg. Um, I mean, I don't think he has long to live. Don't get me wrong. Putin is somebody who has a track record of seeking out uh, enemies, um, you know, for, for many, many years to come after the fact. But what I mean to say is, um, I think Putin has more room for maneuver uh, when it comes to deciding that Russia's had enough of the conflict than, he, than we've given him credit for. So, you know, whether you want to call it sort of chinks in the armor of invincibility, um, or, or weakness, some, you know, some very wise observers on Russia have, have suggested that that's a fallacy. Uh, authoritarian regimes are brittle, right? They don't bend, they break. And I would say we are at the stage of, of cracks. Now, maybe, and, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is what starts to happen toward the end of this year, we do get more murmurings uh, about negotiations. But the risk, of course, is um, that a ceasefire, you know, in the immortal words of the political scientist uh, Edward Lutfak, it just buys time to to reload. Um, and there isn't a sincere desire to, to make a deal. Um, that's what would worry me. And that's what will worry Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you ever think about the idea of a post-Putin Russia? Is that something that, you know, is worth yeah. contemplating at this stage? Yeah. Well, and we should all be thinking about a post-Putin Russia. I mean, I was certainly thinking about it when Prigozhin was getting close to the Kremlin and, and thought, well, he would definitely be worse than Putin um, if he, you know, if he, if he were to truly go for it. Although, as he said, he was merely kind of registering his, his discontent with his employer and uh, working arrangements, not actually going for a full-blown coup. Um, Putin's been in power for a long time. He's managed to uh, sideline, shall we say, anybody who, who might be a challenger. Uh, but the costs of this conflict are, are very deep for Russia. At the same time, he won't be dislodged by a popular revolution. It would be what political scientists call a palace coup. And for that to happen, there would have to be a viable alternative to Putin. And I'm not sure uh, we're getting close to that yet. Mm-hmm. Next year, one of the things I'm writing about is the mega election cycle. And one of the elections is in Russia. Um, the other is in, is in Ukraine. And um, uh, I think that um, the Ukrainian leader will be reelected uh, as a national unity figure. But uh Putin cares about this election in Russia in 2024 because if he wins, he stays in in office longer than Stalin. And, you know, that kind of allows him to enter the pantheon of of great Russian leaders as he sees himself alongside Peter the Great and and Catherine the Great and and Stalin. So Putin will want to make it into um, that that company. Uh, And so he will probably be in preserving power uh, um, mindset now, right? Thinking about legacy and uh, where he goes from here. You know, uh, many have likened it to King Lear. Yeah. 
Uh, let me bring in a couple of uh, audience questions here. Uh, Ralph mentions that it's uh, scary times with war still going on with no signs of peace. And I think the implicit question here is, do you see any signs of peace? Uh, and similarly, you know, from the other side, a question from Joanna about the risks for escalation in Eastern Europe. So, so talk about those two perspectives, you know, the possibility that this could sort of mutate and grow bigger or the possibility that it could actually end. Yeah. Well, so we have to consider all of these scenarios, right? And and to think about what the kind of, you know, decision tree or, or event progression would look like to, to get us there. Um, Ukrainian sources um, broke the news the other day that they believed that Russia had planted something like explosives on the roof of the Zaporizhia um, nuclear plant, which has also been occupied, has had its water source um, undermined with the bombing of the dam, etc. An escalation in the form of a, an incident or an accident, the kind of development which Russia excels at that involves plausible deniability, is something that we need to, to conceive of as, as being a material risk, right? So people who use the logic of, well, Russia wouldn't attack NATO because that would trigger an Article 5 response. Um, I think that's correct, but there are a whole range of below threshold developments, which would be quite damaging and escalatory, right? And one of them would be undermining the security of Zaporizhia or other kind of tactical developments. So, so that's plausible. I mean, one plus point to China and Russia's new friendship without limits, which they agreed in February, is that it does appear that Xi Jinping is uh, pressuring Putin um, in one form or another to say, don't even think about using nuclear weapons. Um, so that's possible. Um, the, to me, the most compelling uh, logic for peace talks is that Putin doesn't want his, his legacy in his final years caught up in this. Um, but the risk to me is that he is a master at maintaining optionality, uh, whether that's in Syria, where Russia continues to have operations, Chechnya, which, you know, a war many people have forgotten, went for independence and was pretty much wiped off the map. Uh, and Georgia, where we have a Russian-leaning government. I mean, these are the conflicts that Russia has been involved in since the late 90s, and they all still are with us uh, in one form or another. So it's not a pretty picture, but I would just remind your, your viewers and your readers that um, conflicts tend to last a long time. And uh, it, it is a fallacy, you know, the kind of it'll all be over by Christmas idea, um, you know, that goes back to, to World War II, uh, and, you know, and, and uh, one former U.S. president who I won't name who said, you know, trade wars are good and easy to win. Um, no wars uh, are easy to win. And, um, and yet as humans, we, you know, we keep attempting them. But that's a philosophical point for another day. <laughs> Uh, a quick reminder to our audience that we love your questions and you can put them in the uh, Q&A box here as you watch. Uh, Tina, you, you hinted there uh, at the other big source of geopolitical risk, China. Uh, 
Janet Yellen, of course, is there today. We saw headlines this morning uh, that she met with the Chinese premier, who apparently said that the two of them saw a rainbow and that that was a good sign for the relationship. So uh, all, all sunny skies ahead here, right? Well, rainbow. that is touching. Um, I, I hadn't seen that. And I feel like I can't say something about this meeting with Janet Yellen without you know, telling your readers, having having had a chance to meet her on a couple of occasions. Janet Yellen is just the sweetest, loveliest woman, as well as having the brain, this you know, the size of a supercomputer. It's just diminutive lady who speaks in this charming Brooklyn accent. And I wouldn't be surprised if she, you know, was able to charm the Chinese leader. Um, she is also a rare uh, dove. Um, among China hawks in the Biden administration and and you know in, in U.S. Um, political leaders, so this will be a positive development. I, th I think market this meeting rather markets um, did trade up a little bit on the news, but this is such a you know tricky road to hoe to to balance between having a national security strategy which says outright that China is, you know, something quite close to an enemy, uh, and then saying that we want to maintain um, commercial relations and, you know, just kind of de-risk the parts that, that worry us. Um, th this isn't an easy balance to tread, but I do think both sides are keen to take the heat out of the relationship since the balloon incidents uh, from a while back. Yeah, she, you, you've, you alluded to the strategy she has of, of saying that you can sort of fence off national security competition and still have what she calls healthy competition on the other side. It's of course not just Yellen, it's lots of people in the administration believe this, but do you, do you think that that what, what do you make of that idea that you can go to China, go to Beijing, tell the leaders, well, you know, it's it's our prerogative to, you know, put Huawei on the entity list or, you know, whatever uh, restrictions you will need to put on, you know, advanced chips and, and still somehow we can do business to them. You know, does that strike you as something that's likely to last for a long time, that balancing act? How, what do you make of that? I think it's really hard to modulate, first of all, and to control. If we if we try to focus on the data, trade between the U.S. and China as, is as robust as ever, um, and uh, so it's important to do that to kind of you know look at the facts. There's another side to this, though. Let me you know bring in what I see from my vantage point as an advisor uh, to boards and and working with financial institutions. I've never heard so much trepidation, kind of open trepidation about doing business in, in China um, and the sense that the, the headaches uh, kind of outweigh the, the, the possible uh, benefits. I mean, for certain large multinationals, um, it's quite different. They have a footprint there and that's not changing, but there's much more talk of uh, the China plus strategy um, and that is interesting too. I mean, if anything, I think there was too much emphasis on this idea that the U.S. was going to, sorry, that China was going to overtake the U.S. and this was some kind of inevitable uh, trend. Now we see something more diffuse um, with even, you know, old style economies like Japan uh, potentially benefiting. And that's where 
you know, bringing it back to the super cycle idea, certainly, you know, kind of Cold War style stability, such as it was, was beneficial for the expansion of, of multinationals and global trade and the integration of financial markets. Where we are now is going to lead to some interesting new patterns, new alliances, uh, I think miscalculations as well, a more difficult environment, certainly for investors. Um, uh, but I, I think it's maybe more normal. Mm -hmm. And is that normal? You know, we're seeing tit for tat sanctions this week, you know, China putting restrictions on exports of certain metals that are important to semiconductors and electric vehicles. You know, is that back and forth just what we should expect for the foreseeable future with, you know, certain sectors and industries getting hit every now and then? Uh, yes, yeah. I, I'm afraid so. And uh, it, it does make for a very choppy trading environment, uh, you know, the whole trend of reshoring, friendshoring, et cetera, seems set to to continue. Of course, that's still better than than all out war and conflict between the two, you know, the world's two largest economies. Um, again, you know, there's a much higher cost to uh, having the, the, the kind of conflict with China as, as the US and Europe have with Russia. Russia, just the stakes are so much lower. Uh, and so we're going to see, um, you know, a, a kind of a commercial angle to this conflict. And that's that's really how we need to remember what geopolitics means. Geopolitics is what countries do to project power beyond their borders. It doesn't mean they only use political means to do it. Tariffs and sanctions are part of that, cyber attacks, uh, et cetera. Um, and so the two sides will keep doing this. And the the alternative is the, you know, the, the Thucydides trap idea that Graham Allison has wrote about, written about the you know sense of an inevitability between conflict between the U.S. and China. Henry Kissinger has said recently in his um, uh, interviews on the uh, eve of his hundredth birthday that he's more concerned about this. Even so, it's not uh, you know none of this is inevitable. The very the very notion of the risk of it should give us pause to. Invest in prevention, the phrase I, I used before. Mm -hmm. Do you see any upsides to, you know, companies considering more of a China plus strategy? I mean, you, you mentioned also, you know, sort of the changing balance of power in the region. And, you know, we've talked at other times about, um, you know, the idea of sort of Japan taking its defense more seriously will potentially, you know, bring some stability to the conflict um, risks there, too. But, but talk about that. We have new patterns of uh, alliances and allegiances. Um, I mean, Putin has certainly done NATO a favor. It wasn't that long ago that Macron, who is prone to, you know, kind of coming up with these ideas, Macron said NATO is obsolete. NATO is now not only not obsolete, but is bigger than before with Finland and uh, and certainly Sweden coming later, the U.S. and Europe are closer than than they were before. Um, the UK is even closer to Europe after Brexit, and the conflict with Russia has been part of of that uh, of the forces that has uh, reconsolidated those alliances. 
On the other side of the coin, in what we used to call the, the non-aligned movement in the olden days, um, the non-aligned movement hasn't reconstituted itself, but there's a sort of a muscle memory there. I was recently talking to um, African uh, colleagues who, who you know, wanted to remind um, people of Russia's role during the wars of decolonization and how much they've resented Western support for Ukraine, all very understandable. But what, for example, India has done uh, is play this whole situation to its advantage. You know, buy Russian energy supplies on the cheap, um, and Modi goes to Washington and gets a, a state visit. You know, so he's hardly penalized for doing so. And the countries that are able to to walk that balance effectively of, you know, cooperating and collaborating with the G7, as well as China, um, and not necessarily aligning with anyone, stand to do well, at least in this sort of period of fluidity when they don't have to, to, change, to, to take sides. Mm -hmm. Um, let me bring in an audience question that speaks a little bit to some of this. Uh, Alvero asks, uh, do you think Putin will use the grain deal as a weapon to gain more control? And um, related to that, I'd love to know what you think about, you know, the, the sort of the fallout from the Wagner uh, rebellion for uh, countries in Africa. Yeah, I mean, um, I feel it's a little bit unknowable now because what's likely happening, and we, you know, we need to think of the Wagner Group as a kind of a organized crime slash, you know, mercenary group. It's a word from from history books, so they don't necessarily follow. Uh, you know, they're not state actors; they're non-state actors in the in the truest sense of the word. The impact on Africa is probably going to be a power vacuum in the places where they've been. I think there'll be a fight for the spoils. Um, you know, that's not necessarily uh, an amazing insight. Um, Prigozhin is is uh, calculating what he's going to be able to get away with. If he's still useful for, useful for, for Putin, um, then I think that they will stick around. But the whole, you know, remember that the backstory, as we now understand it to the Wagner Group, uh, drama was um, bringing it under control of the Russian security services. Um, so um, there may be uh, uh, some some shifting ground happening there. What was the first part of the question? Sorry. The first uh, question is about the about the grain deal. The, the grain deal. Yeah. Yes. So um, you know, m much as uh, as Russia will keep Evan until it gets something um, that it wants, um, uh, Russia will not agree to a grain deal. Uh, it seems to me until it can extract some concessions for it, and and this is absolutely consistent with the Kremlin playbook. Uh, why agree a deal in advance? What is the upside there when you can hold uh, the West and um, uh, you know EM countries hostage uh, until such time as you can possibly extract more concessions for it? Yeah. Uh, in the last couple of minutes here, I wanted to at least briefly get into the U.S. political cycle because I don't think we can do a sort of tour of geopolitical <laughs> risk without talking about that. Yeah. Um, you know, we're headed towards primaries, GOP primaries here. They're they're underway. The first debate is 
uh, taking place in August, uh, just next month. Uh, wh what are your expectations for how this is going to, you know, is this going to be a, as chaotic a cycle, let's say, as 2020 and 2016? What's your view? I'm afraid the answer is yes. I mean, I, I I come from an emerging markets background. So although I'm American by birth and have been living in, in the UK for 21 years, um, you know, I, I actually look at the US uh, through the prism of emerging markets. And um, I wrote about this uh, during the, the midterms that we should be thinking about US elections like an EM, meaning um, possibly unresolved, possibly going to the courts. These are functions of low trust in countries where the population at large has low trust in institutions. And in the United States, uh, that's been true for a long time. But what is new is the low trust in the judiciary, in the Supreme Court. And given that the Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter uh, in a disputed election, um, the fact that the Supreme Court is the least trusted, I believe, than it's, that it's ever been in, in U.S. history is bad news. And, you know, again, I'm a political scientist. I, I'm not a kind of a, a, a election forecaster, number cruncher. Um, I think we are probably headed for um, another close race. I think it's going to be bloody. Um, and I would just remind um, your your listeners, uh, our listeners, that um, whatever the kind of prevailing trend appears to be at this early stage is almost always completely obliterated <laughs> closer to the time. So it's yeah. fun if you are a political junkie to think about this. But whether it's you know RFK Jr. or unknown unknowns, as the late great Donald Rumsfeld called them, uh, it's early days, very early days, and I don't hear anything other than the most fanciful stories from uh, Washington types that I talk to. Yeah, you, you mentioned RFK Jr. and there's a question I wanted to get to here about COVID from one of our readers, uh, Daraj, who said. COVID virus is dormant and when it mutates and comes back, are we prepared for it? And another way to, to put that is, you know, are we done with the sort of political upheaval from, from the pandemic? Uh, or you think this is still gonna keep playing out uh, over the next couple of years? So uh, it is a great point because as humans, we have a, a remarkable ability to sort of compartmentalize or even develop complete amnesia about things which are unpleasant. And, and I think that is certainly true in the case of COVID. I mean, it was horrible for everyone um, who, who lived through it. Uh, one of the questions I'm asked very often is, you know, what about black swans? And I say, forget about black swans. You know, the, the most likely sort of systemic risks are things we already know about, like as, as the, uh, our questioner says, a, a pandemic relapse. And that's boring, so people don't spend enough time looking at it. What I think will have changed, if God forbid there is a relapse soonish, let's say within 10 years, um, is the dramatic kind of uh, blanket shutdown effects. Um, that's uh, what I suspect. Uh, and I do hope for the sake of the you know, future of humanity that uh, vaccine skepticism 
uh, gets back into its box because it's not only COVID, it's all kinds of other diseases which are still very risky, especially in the developing world. Um, but the you know we one of the threads throughout our conversation, Matt, has been the negative effects of of low trust, uh, whether that's in you know the upcoming election in the richest country in the world or the potential for more systemic risks. Um, and on that front, I say, you know, stick with facts, stick with quality journalism like Barron's <laughs> um, <laughs> and resist uh, simple conspiracy theories. It's a sign of the times um, when people feel overwhelmed and want a simplistic narrative. Uh, they're, you know, they're drawn to, to these stories. Yeah. All right. Well, we can we can leave it there on a plug for Barons and journalism. Uh, thank you to our audience for tuning in, Tina. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So, everyone, I hope you will come back again on Monday uh, when my colleagues Lauren Rublin and Ben Levison will speak to the founder and managing partner of Fairlead Strategies, Katie Stockton, on the outlook for financial markets, in, uh, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Thank you, and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.